number 1076. Santa Barbara's annual 14th Writers' Conference presents tape number 10B. Julia Child is the speaker. In the entirety of the 14-year conference. Uh, and another one is Joseph Persh tomorrow. Telephone from uh, England, and uh, we'll probably read about it in the paper, but he is the, as you probably know, the, uh, the greatest authority on alcoholism and drug addiction in the country. It's the man that got Betty Ford sober and Billy Carter, and uh, uh, he is connected with, with Wimbledon in, as far as their drug program and whatever that means. And apparently the, the women tennis players have, um, have refused to take the, the test for, for drugs or steroids or whatever they're looking for. Anyway, to make a long story much longer, uh, he's um, not coming tomorrow. And so at 4 o'clock, we have a brilliant substitute, uh, the best substitute and the only substitute I could find at this late date, which is me. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to um, uh, show you a film I did for Alastair Cook some years ago. I'm going to read the thing that it was based on that I wrote, and then I'm going to show you the little film that was made from it, and we'll see uh, if a thousand words is bettered by one picture. You can make up your own mind. Um, Without further ado, everybody in the world wants to think they can. Two things, they can run a restaurant and write a book. And uh, Julia Childs has uh, sort of done both, and we'll hear about it from Julia Childs, who needs no introduction. I've never tried to run a restaurant. I know too much about it. But I know that he has. That he has. And I, of all of you here writing or about to write a cookbook, how many are writing one? Hooray! How many already have? Good. He intends to. Good. Good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm awfully glad there are so many of you. And I must say, cookbookery is a, a really long and horrible process. I'm in the midst of writing my seventh at this moment, and it's getting bigger and more unwieldy and more hideous every day. Luckily, I have a, I have a new word processor, so that that's helping. But I love my work, awful as it is. <laughs> And for the first time ever, we have a condominium over here in uh, Montecito Shores, and it had a little tiny dining room, and we turned the dining room into my office. So for the first time, I have my work next to my stove, and it's very convenient indeed. And my husband, Paul, who's a painter and writer, a painter and a photographer, works as usual in the master bedroom. We've never, he's never had a proper studio, but I'm very lucky with mine. Now, I certainly shan't presume to tell anyone how to write anything. All I can do is to tell you something about what I've done myself. Now, we'll start in on how I began, 
and then I will go into how I think you might be able to get a publisher interested, and then finally some suggestions on how to how to how to sell it once it's done, which is always use, useful to know when you've spent so much time over it. And do interrupt me at any time that you'd like and ask any questions you want, so this can be in, informal and informative. Well. I didn't, I never had written much of anything until I went over to France when my husband Paul was in the U.S. Information Agency, and that was in 19, the end of 1948, just after World War II. And I had never had that kind of cooking before either, and I remember our first meal, we, at those, in those days we went over by slow boat and we took our big old Buick with us. And our, my first meal was at Rouen, in the place where Joan of Arc was roasted. <laughs> but I, I always remember that meal. We, we started, we started out with oysters. I'd never had French oysters and then a, a lovely Muscadet wine to go with them. Then we had a fillet of sole and a beautiful creamy sauce with lobster and other things with it and another beautiful wine and then a, a, just a lovely dessert and I, that was my first French meal and I, I never turned back after that. And then we landed in Paris and even though it was just after the war and they still had rationing, the food was absolutely marvelous. And I had been casting around for a life work and I had thought that I might be a great woman novelist. Nothing ever appeared, nothing, nothing ever happened to that. And I just found that food really interested me enormously and I was able to join the Cordon Bleu and I started out in their regular classes and found that it was mostly housewives and not very interesting, but that they did have an early morning class for the GIs who were on the Bill of Rights. And there were 12 of them, and they started in at 7 o'clock in the morning and cooked away till about 11. And they were, they didn't mind having a woman joining them at all, which was very nice for me. We had a marvelous old chef, Max Bignard, who had worked with Escoffier and had started in when he was 12 and was a, really a master of the great classic cuisine. So I was just very lucky in that. I went to the Cordon Bleu for about five or six months until they began repeating, like you can do chauffeur de poulet for about three times and then you'd like to do something else. And I, by that time I felt that I had spent enough money at the Cordon Bleu and I had made a great friend of the chef at that point so that I could go on learning from him if necessary. And at that point also I met my two French colleagues and Simka, Simon Beck, who was my main colleague, invited me to become a member of a French gastronomical ladies club called Le Cercle des Gourmets. And that was very fortunate for me because I was the only American besides the president of Madame Etlanger, who had, an American who had married a French jeweler, and she had lived in France since World War I, and she was rather glad to have another American. 
but it was wonderful otherwise to have a completely French atmosphere, so I learned a great deal there. And then it turned out that my friend Finca and her colleague Louisette Bertol were writing a book on French cooking for Americans, and they did have a collaborator who died, which I was very happy to learn about because I <laughs> began thinking I would like to go in with them on it. And at about that time, we had some friends from Pasadena, California, who came to Paris and they said, they knew that I was studying cooking, they knew about Simca and Louisette, and they said, well, we'd like to learn some French cooking, but we don't speak any French, so why don't you give us some lessons? And my friend Simca, who was always ready to do anything, said, well, why not? So the next day, practically, we started our cooking school called the École des Trois Gourmands. I had a wonderful time doing it. Paul would come home for lunch and get a beautiful lunch, and we cooked and ate, and everyone had to pay, of course. We never made any money, but we had a very good time, and I learned a great deal about it, and at about that time, we started in on our book. And, of course, I'd never written a book at all, or written not much of anything, but... I hadn't started cooking until I was in my 30s. Most of the books didn't give enough detail, like, for instance, I remember the first broiled chicken I made after we were married, and it just said, put it in and turn it after 15 minutes and cook it on the other side. And, of course, it didn't say how far from the broiler, and in about five minutes it had begun to burn. So I realized that, that writing notes on various things, that, that we really needed a lot more detail so that when I started, I was doing the writing. They were giving me recipes and so forth, and I was doing the writing of it. I made things really very detailed. And we finally got through about half of the sauce chapter, so I sent it around to various friends in the States to see how they liked it. And one of my friends happened to be Avis DeVoto, who was the widow of Bernard DeVoto, the famous historian and writer. And she was very much interested in food, and she was closely connected with Houghton Mifflin. And she sent it to Houghton Mifflin, and Dorothy de Santillana happened to be the editor who was, it was given to, and she liked the manuscript, and so they sent us a contract for $250. This was in 19, about 1950, I guess. That was about what you got, particularly if you were unknown. And so we went on and on with the book, finished the sauce chapter, and then started in on the poultry chapter. And that finally got the manuscript done. It took about six or seven years, because I was, well, we were in Paris at that time, and then we were moved down to Marseille, and then we were in Germany. And finally we came home on home leave in about 1954, and we had the manuscript done by that time. It was 800 pages on French sauces and French poultry. <laughs> so <laughs> it had every possible detail in it, such if you were going to do a pressed duck. And you didn't have a live duck, because for a pressed duck, you have to have a live duck, and you bleed it and collect all the blood. 
No, you don't. Excuse me. You suffocate it so the blood stays in it. I don't know exactly how you do it. I just twist its neck. The blood stays in it. So after you've roasted it, very rare, and you put it in the duck press, there's some something to come out. And so I had found that if you didn't have fresh duck blood, you could go to the slaughterhouse and get some pig blood. And that, that would work very well. And of course, there were details like this in the book, and our editor... <laughs> Dorothy de Santillana said it was all very interesting, but it was absolutely unpublishable. In what they <laughs> after nine years, eight or nine years of work, my heavens, I think they. Well, anyway, they said what they really wanted was a conventional book from soup to nuts. So about another three or four years later, <laughs> we produced what is essentially mastering the art of French cooking. And Holden Mifflin said, well, that was just too much for them, that it just was too big and too detailed and too elaborate. But luckily, our friend Avis DeVoto, see, that's where it's very good to have a friend, sent it to Knopf. And at that point, luckily for me, Judith Jones, who's really one of the most distinguished cookbook editors in New York, saw it and liked it because she was a cook. And so that's how we got our first contract. It had to be revised to some extent, but that's how it came into being. And see, it was published in 1961. And I think we were very fortunate in that it was published just at the right time in that people, finally airplane traffic had started up. So people were going over to France more and getting much more interested in food and cooking. The Kennedys were in the White House, and they had their wonderful chef, René Verdot. And so there was quite a bit of talk about French cooking, and people were just becoming very much more interested in it. So I think we were very fortunate having it published at that time. And it got some very nice reviews. And I don't know, did it sell something like 3,000 copies in the first year, which seemed like quite a bit. I can't remember just what it did. But anyway... It did, well, I can't say it was a blockbuster, but it did reasonably well. And then we had moved back to Cambridge, Massachusetts at that time, and WGBH, our local educational television station, was looking around for new programs, and they said, would you like to try a cooking program? Well, that was after I had... Well, that was there had been a book review program in the summertime, and the academic who was doing the program liked to have a an author and a book. And at that time of year, there weren't many authors around, so we said, well, I'll take that cookbook as long as the author's there. Huh. So, <laughs> and in the meantime, the WGBH studio burnt down <laughs> with our book in it. So I had to give them, un give them a new copy, which rather hurt me because <laughs> we were living on a very strict budget. But anyway, I did the interview, and you can't talk too much about cooking without doing something. So I, they, were, they had a little kind of a pulpit like this, and they were broadcasting in a makeshift church, sort of a small church thing because of the, of the studio having burnt down. So I brought my little hot plate and I, I made an omelet, you know, by shaking the pan. That was something people hadn't seen because 
they hadn't been doing much French cooking. And I had a big copper bowl and I beat up some egg whites, making a big, big noise, clackety-clack. And it turned out that there, were, that there was quite a bit of an interest in people would call and write into the studio and say, well, why don't we have a cooking program? So they said, well, would you like to try out three pilots? And Paul and I had hardly seen television because it had hardly begun at that point, but we said, sure. So we did three pilot programs, and it turned out that indeed there was an interest. So we did a, a first series of 13, and the first one aired February 11th, 1963. I remember the date, I don't know why. It was all black and white. Then it turned out there was a great deal of interest. And the first 13 were done on, you know, old tape, which they, they had, they'd used old tape and, and recorded over it. So those first 13 tapes didn't last very long. But then we kept doing more. And fortunately for us, other stations took it on and finally New York and San Francisco and so forth. That really launched launched the book and launched me because fortunately for me again there were no other cooking programs at all. Dione Lucas, who was a, probably most of you know her, she was a marvelous technician. She had been on television when it first started, but after that there was there was none. Short about a year after I started, the Galloping Gourmet started in, and then a few other people. But that really started the book going. And that's about coming to my second point of is try and get yourself known by hook or by crook if you possibly can so that, I mean, that does help selling. And my, that's even the actual second point that I was going to bring is, is how, how to get a publisher interested. Well, again, that's a matter of getting yourself known because a publisher is not going to publish something from an unknown cook unless they have an amazing and unusual story to tell. So I think with most people, if they want to start in, they should get a column going in the local paper, and they should also, you should also get hold of, of the food magazines, because once you get published, you have something in your background and, or, or in your portfolio so that you can show it around. We have a friend who works with us, I don't, we've, for four years, I did a, a monthly food article in Parade Magazine, and one of my assistant cooks, Nancy Barr, started out that way. She worked with us. She also had a byline, so that was useful on the parade thing. And then she's been writing for Bon Appetit and Cook's Magazine. But I think that that's terribly important, that you have to get something so that people know who you are and something so that you can sh show that something has been published. And that is a matter of, I think, of just being very tough and very pushy. I think it's hard to be pushy, but you have to try to be whether you like it or not. And then once, once published, I think you have to keep, you have to keep going and, and try and keep yourself known. Sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. And I don't think sometimes it makes any difference whether the book is any good or not. Unfortunately, I mean, we all think ours is going to be the best. I was looking at the Book of the Month Club, the cooking and crafts thing, and there was, there was one book by Paul Bocuse, that was his first book, which sold 40,000 copies before Christmas. He didn't even write the book. He bought the rights to 
the papers of an old French chef whose name was Garret or something like that. And then he just put his name on it, and I think he only has two recipes in it. And it has all this big introduction about everything is fresh and the cuisine du marché. And then you look at the recipe for green beans, and they're cooked 15 minutes and then rinsed off and cooked 15 minutes longer. <laughs> and I think only the recipes of his, there's a fish and seaweed and another fish in a brioche coat. But it doesn't seem to make any difference. He has a great name, and it has sold. And another book is by a chap who... I think, think probably inadvertently, because I don't think he wrote the book himself either, had about 40 recipes that were taken word by word from another author. And he was sued, and the suit was settled out of court. But there's that book, right, in the Book of the Month Club, so it really doesn't make too much difference. I don't know why, why it is sold so much, except the fact that it has a trendy title, that's another thing that if you want to sell, if you're trendy, now nowadays trendy is American or ethnic or anything to do with diets. And I, I think, you know, with Michel Gerard's famous book, The Cuisine Masseur, I'm sure, I don't think you could probably even find it in a bookstore now, but I'm sure that if they just changed the title and called it Michel Gerard's quick weight loss gourmet French diet book, I think it would probably <laughs> resell. <laughs> so I think that's one of the main things that I had, had to say, and I was hoping that somebody would have questions that we could discuss. Does anyone have something here? Is this, would Santa Barbara in the cookbook name be helpful? Well, of course, you have the, the soap opera Santa Barbara, so that might help. <laughs> that, that I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know whether Santa Barbara is a trendy word. Well, American and diet are. <laughs> Santa Barbara does have a very wonderful connotation. If you do not live here, you say you live in Santa Barbara, people say, oh, what a, you know, I mean, it does have a very positive mm. Well, maybe it was if it was the Santa Barbara healthy 10-minute dinner book or something like that. <laughs> I, I just don't know. I think that would be, it would be very interesting to know what, what would be catchy. I think when you look at a book like, uh, um, what's her name who wrote the wonderful book on Southwest, French Southwest cooking, uh, for, um, Paula Wolford. Now that's a beautiful book, very, very carefully written. It really advances the art of cooking. But I don't imagine that's probably sold a great deal. Yes? Well, what about cooking today? What is the end food? It's like when we were talking about pasta, maybe that's something. Yeah. Food. This is a question of what's the end food now? Well, I suppose Cajun and always, always diet seems to be in. But the thing is, do you want to write something that's going to sell quickly, or do you want to write something that's going to, you feel is going to advance the art and science of cooking? Those are two different things. Right. And very often, too, you can get, if you just want to write to sell, there are companies who say the beef, I'm, I'm sure that beef, the beef growers now are very anxious to get people to eat more beef. So probably if you did a wonderful beef book that they would help launch it. 
But if you want to write something really very serious, there's another question. Yes, way over there. Now, the, I guess everyone heard this. This is a question of, friend, of good cooking without cream and eggs. I think most of the books now are, are quite conscious of that because I think so many people are interested in, in health and weight watching. I know I'm very conscious of it myself in my new book. And if I put in one or two tablespoons of butter for a enrichment parenthesis, optional. So you can do whatever you want. But I, there's certainly an awful lot of nonsense and scare stuff by, by, I don't know there would be nutritionists or what, but there's an awful lot of misinformation. And I think the advertising doesn't help at all where they say no salt and there's no sugar and then it turns out it's very dangerous not to have enough salt. I was reading about two people who died in an operation because they had no sodium in their blood. Did you read about that? I thought, I'm always happy to read that. <laughs> Way back there. It's cooking what? With no crisis? Cooking with, oh, that's Josephine Arnaldo from San Francisco. Oh, yeah, she's a wonderful old girl. I think she's about 95 and did a lot of teaching and so forth. Do you know her? Well, I think it's, a, it's fun. I like it. I, they didn't take very nice pictures of her, though. <laughs> yes? Now, this is a question of who does the graphics in the book. I think that depends entirely on what your contract says. If it's a terribly good book, they might do it, but I think that all depends on your contract. And that brings up a question again of agents. Uh, I've never had an agent. I'm just fortunate in that we didn't need one and that our friend Avis sent the book. But I know that our publishers like agents because they think they're gentlemanly. But my feeling about an agent is they have to Pay, play footsie with all the publishers. So, but while if you have a lawyer, the lawyer is working just for you. So I've always had a lawyer, which I would prefer to have. But then I think it makes a difference. Are you writing freelance, and do you need do you need, do you need an agent to find outlets for your writing? That's have have you have you got an agent? Or how are you doing it? Well, when I came myself, I was going to get an agent. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I, I know uh, all about marketing. The marketing I could do myself. Mm -hmm. 
Well, she says she knows about marketing, but then why don't you get a lawyer? <laughs> you know. Yes. This is, do I think microwave ovens are here to stay and do I own one? We got one about when they first came out. And I dry the newspaper in it. <laughs> and I, I use it as a defroster. And once in a while I cook a baked potato in it. But I just start it and then cook something and then finish it off in the oven usually. I think it's a very different, the microwave is, wave is a very, very different way of cooking. And I do think if you have the money to buy a conventional oven that has a microwave in it so that you can change from one to the other in the same oven, I think that would be a very good idea. So say you'd started out the roast chicken and it wasn't quite done, you could zap it with the microwave and that would be very nice. Yes? This is somebody who's looking for a book on Portuguese cooking. Have you been to the library? Everywhere. Everywhere. It seems to me I saw one once, but I don't know. And does anyone know a book on Portuguese cooking? Oh, what, what is yours? Good, good. I th well, this is when you send a book in, do the editors try out the recipes or what exactly happens? I think most of the editors, if they are cooks, they don't need to try out the recipes because they can tell pretty much how they're written. As a matter of fact, I did bring along a paper. The uh, International Association of Cooking Professionals had their annual meeting last March in Washington, and they had a lot of panel discussions, and they had one on writing for the media. And here was Richard Sachs, who does quite a bit of writing, both books and for freelance for magazines. And he says, you must have a point of view and you must have something to say. Treat yourself as a professional, making sure to request a detailed assignment, which is your legal protection. And if you're trying to sell a book, the initial proposal is of utmost importance. It should be four to five pages long, not an outline, and it should review every aspect of the book, including its style and tone. When you write about food, you should have an opinion and convey it by putting your material in a context, perhaps nutritional, historical, or sociological. A literary agent can be helpful with such things as selling a book abroad or selling serial rights. Writing for publication can be rewarding and lucrative, but it's hard work and demands unstinting professionalism in behavior and attitude. I think that's another thing that one should remember, too, in particularly in the cookbook that, as old Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. In other words, the editor is going to look at things, but they have about 15 other books, so they're, they're not going to follow through your every word. They'll spot check here and there. But it's your responsibility entirely to make sure that everything's right. And I think an index is a very difficult thing. I, for some reason, they, you'll get 
the page proofs back, and then they'll say, well, now you have two weeks to do the index, which is really crazy. But I think that we've had a, the first book, our Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1, Paul and I did the index. It was a, I think it's a very good index, but I think it's a little over-indexed, and then we wrote it for a two-column index, and I think we put so much in that they turned it to three columns, which makes it a little difficult to read. Then with Volume 2, we had a friend do the index, and that's a terrible mistake. She had a mastectomy in the middle of it, and half of the things weren't in, and I just luckily had those two weeks to do first, to write the correct her index and then go back. Then another time, I think it was in the white book, the company book, our editor said, now I'm going to get you a really good indexer this time. And so she got a woman who had done a lot of psychology and sociology and so forth. But she didn't know the difference between a boil and a burroil. <laughs> so that was terrible. So I, I really think you're much better off doing it yourself or getting somebody to do part of it and then you go over it. Because I think you're the only person, particularly in a, something, a professional book like a cookbook, you're the only person who knows really what needs to be indexed. This friend who did one of our indexes, she also had things like creativity, which you would supposed to look up in the index, but there was nothing for green peas. <laughs> well, that's very I think just remember, too, that you're entirely responsible for, for everything, that the editor's just going to give you pointers here and there, but it's up to you as to how it all works out. Yes? Oh, well, this is, she, she's asking about the American Institute of Wine and Food. And this is something that quite a few of us have felt for a long time was necessary, that there is no gathering place for, uh, for gastronomy at all. And even, even in the whole world, there's nothing where there's one central place where you could go to find out anything that you wanted. And... Uh, John Ronstead from Antioch College five or six years ago wanted to establish at Antioch a, um, a gast gastronomical academic course. And everyone said, isn't that a wonderful idea? And everyone wrote, and he wrote to everybody, and everyone said, fine, but nothing ever happened to it. And uh, about five or six years ago, no, about five, four or five years ago, I happened to be at a dinner party where the Chancellor Huttenback was and also Richard Graff, who is the owner and the winemaker of Chalon Vineyards. And we were discussing that, and Huttenback said, well, you don't want to get yourself involved in academia. You'll just get into trouble. The thing to do is to have an institute. And he said, as a matter of fact, that we have a piece of property here at the university which is not being used, and you could probably lease that which was done, and then fortunately, I'm always talking about people fortunately dying, but <laughs> uh, Eleanor Goldstein, who had the corner bookshop in New York with a distinguished collection of cookbooks, and she died, and her husband, who was a book collector, 
said to a friend of ours in Cambridge, Mass., what am I going to do with all these cookbooks? I don't want them. I'm, and the friend said, who was a collector of ancient carving methods, said, well, send them all up to me, and I can either get rid of them as a group or whatever. And it just happened that it was after our meeting here about the establishing an institute, we happened to go back to Cambridge, and he called me up and said, look what I've got. So I went over and saw this wonderful collection of ancient books, most of the great French ones you've ever heard of. I called up Dick Graff immediately, and he fortunately, fortunately was able to get hold of Lila Yeager of Rutherford Hill Winery, and she was able to put up the money so that we could get the books, and that is the nucleus of our collection. We have, I can't remember, about 1,500 books. And we're waiting until we get raise the money to build the buildings for the institute, which will be at the at UCSB. And in the meantime, we've had conferences on gastronomy here, and we have uh, a quarterly journal. And a great plum in our cap is that Nancy Jenkins of the New York Times, the food editor of the New York Times, is going to take over the editorship of the journal, which is wonderful. So we're really starting. It's a question if you know anybody with lots of money that would like to help help us build the buildings, we'd let it let me know. Yes. Now, this is what, what's the most important thing about the title, the cover, the presentation. I think everything ends, enters into it. I think most of you are probably familiar with the Silver Palette Cookbook, which has been an absolute mad success. 